Arguably, the most worrying thing is that I can't see any political actors on the horizon who might be able to offer some hope or some leadership in this situation. There just aren't any. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Peru is in the midst of the worst political violence seen in the country in decades. Protests began in December following the ouster of former President Pedro Castillo. He was impeached and arrested following his effort to dissolve Congress in a brazen attempt to stay in power through a self-coup. Castillo's supporters, who hail largely from the rural underclass, staged large protests. These protests were violently suppressed, resulting so far in dozens of deaths. I caught up with my guest today, reporter Simeon Tegel, just as protesters were moving en masse from rural parts of the country to the capital city, Lima. Simeon Tegel is a freelance journalist and contributor to The Washington Post. We kick off discussing the scene in Lima before having a longer conversation about the causes and consequences of this mounting political crisis. The situation is still very much evolving as I record this, but this conversation will give you the context you need to understand events as they unfold in the coming days, weeks, and even months. Now here is my conversation with journalist Simeon Tegel. Today is the first day that we're expecting significant protests in Lima itself. Up until now, the big protests, the violence has all been in mountain regions, which voted heavily for Pedro Castillo last year. Lima has largely been anti-Castillo. His approval rating was below 10% in Lima. But protesters, mainly from outside the city, from the Andes, have started coming in the last couple of days to Lima. And today is a march planned for this evening in downtown Lima. I suspect, however, that that will be just the first of various marches and perhaps quite a few days of protests and potentially clashes with security forces. 
in the coming days. I think there's still a lot of people on the way to Lima from different parts of the Peruvian Andes. Just kind of looking around Lima today, and we're speaking on Thursday, January 19th, a few hours before this planned evening march, like what's the mood on the ground right now? Well, first of all, Lima is a rather large city with a population of about 10 million people. In most of Lima, there are not going to be protests. And I think life is going on as normal there. But in downtown Lima, which is the protests are going to be focused, shops are closing. They're boarding up their fronts. I know a lot of people are going home from work. Congress has told congressional workers today to work remotely today and tomorrow So there is definitely an expectation that the protests could turn violent. It has to be said, the protesters themselves, we've seen a spectrum of demands, but also tactics from the protesters. There's many who have been peacefully exercising their constitutional right to protest, but there's also some, I think a minority, who have been using violence and have stormed airports, burnt down and looted private businesses. In one case, burnt down a member of Congress's home. And, you know, there is this fringe element who are, call them insurgents or revolutionaries, if you want, but who clearly don't believe in Peruvian democracy, at least not as it's currently constituted. So the big question is, will we see some of that in Lima today? And also, how will the police respond? Because At this point, we've had something like 40 protesters who have been killed by security forces, almost all or all apparently with live ammunition. So although obviously no police service is going to permit people to storm airports or to burn down private property and and that kind of thing, the response here from the police has been disproportionate and has been heavily criticised by human rights groups even by the Organization of American States. So the question is, have the security forces, will they pay heed to that? Or will they, again, respond with this kind of disproportionate, deadly violence as well, if the protests do get a little out of hand? I'd love just to have you step back and explain to listeners, who is Pedro Castillo and why is he such a unique figure in Peruvian politics? So Pedro Castillo, who became president, he was sworn in in July 2021, was someone who had never held elected office before he won the presidency. It was a surprise that he won the presidency. He was this dark horse candidate who actually won, but only just, in a very splintered field in the first round. His background is as a rural school teacher and union leader. He led a wildcat strike back in 2017 as part of a breakaway dissident section of the National Teachers Union here in Peru with a very radical agenda. They were opposed to tests for teachers. Peru has a really seriously underperforming public education sector compared to other countries which uh, have a similar kind of economy to Peru's public education here is way behind. And as an attempt to overhaul that and improve public education, two successive governments had been carrying out an education reform, which was aimed at, among other things, making teachers pass tests to prove that they knew their subjects and teaching techniques. The idea wasn't just to fire lots of them. Many of these teachers were given multiple chances to take the test. If they failed, they could take it again. They were getting coaching. 
and they were going to get pay rises if they passed. But basically, Pedro Castillo was opposed to all of that and led this wildcat strike back in 2017, which is when he first rose to national prominence here. Then we didn't hear much from him until the 2021 presidential election when this one very small fringe party called Free Peru named him as its presidential candidate. They did so because the founder of Free Peru, a former regional governor, Vladimir Seron, was ineligible to run because he had been convicted on a corruption charge. And the party is ostensibly Marxist-Leninist, although in many areas it's also deeply conservative, especially socially conservative. So it's against LGBT rights, really against gender rights as well. And Pedro Castillo, in this very splintered field where all candidates were deeply unpopular, he managed to scrape through, I think, with something like 15 or 16 percent in the first round and got into a runoff election against Keiko Fukimori, the daughter of the jailed 1990s autocrat Alberto Fukimori. She's been a major figure in Peruvian politics here for more than a decade. It's the third time in a row that she had got to the runoff and the third time she lost narrowly. She's embroiled in her own numerous corruption scandals, not to mention accusations of authoritarianism. She's actually facing a trial. It's been looming for a couple of years now. And if she's convicted on the various charges she's facing, prosecutors are asking for, I think it is 33 years of jail for her. So on the one hand, she desperately wanted to be president and get presidential immunity. But on the other, you can see why even a candidate who was as controversial as Pedro Castillo was and was disliked and distrusted by many Peruvians managed to beat Keiko Fukimori by default, you might say, in the presidential runoff in June last year. So Pedro Castillo is the first Peruvian president from the rural indigenous underclass, has been in power for about a year. How has he behaved while in office? Are there specific like policies or issues that he's championed? And what led to his downfall? So that's a really important point about his identity, which I neglected to mention before. He is in Peru a campesino. It's a Spanish word that's kind of can be complicated to translate into English. Some people translate it as peasant, but I don't like that term because it's very pejorative in English. But what it really indicates in Peru is someone who works the land, is pretty humble, a subsistence farmer or near subsistence farmer with indigenous ancestry. So there's a racial element to it as well. And in 200 years of independence, Pedro Castillo was Peru's first campesino president. And in many ways, identity is the reason he was elected. Peru's underclass, especially the rural poor, thought, finally, we will have one of our own in power who will finally speak up for us and represent us. There's a lot of still poverty in Peru, despite it being an upper middle income country, according to the World Bank. But there is very stark inequalities here. And those qualities are also, they run along racial lines, class lines, and geographically as well between the coast and especially Lima and the Andes and Amazon. So marginalized citizens here in Peru thought finally they were going to have one of their own, someone who'd stick up for them once in power. Unfortunately, once Pedro Castillo came to power, he turned out to be really an incompetent president. I mean, there's just no way to get around it. You know, quite off the charts incompetent. 
There are also numerous corruption allegations against him, credible ones, lots of witnesses, lots of documentation and evidence. And that's what precipitated him being ousted last month. But also, he made no serious attempts to follow through on his campaign promises. I mean, his main campaign slogan, no mas pobres en un país rico, no more poor people in a rich country, which makes sense to a lot of Peruvians in a country that has really quite stunning natural resources. He made no attempt to really follow through on that. He promised many things on the campaign trail. A lot of those promises were quite unrealistic. For example, that Peru would dedicate 10% of GDP to education and another 10% of GDP to healthcare. I don't think any country in the world, even in Scandinavia, dedicates anything like those numbers to education or healthcare. At other points, he said he was going to abolish the constitutional court. He'd even talked about banning imports of any products already produced in Peru. So these were a range of promises that many people regarded as very unrealistic. Policy experts regarded them as unrealistic. And also really an indication that Pedro Castillo did not understand or know the first thing about government or how the Peruvian state would work or public policy. And eventually it was these circumstances, his incompetence and also credible allegations of corruption that led to his removal from office. Is that right? That's correct. So he was facing his third impeachment vote on the corruption charges. It was the evening of, I believe, December 7th. And basically, he jumped the gun and decided he didn't want to wait. And that morning gave a out-of-the-blue address to the nation on TV in which he declared that he was going to dissolve Congress and rule by decree while he uh, prepared elections for a constituent assembly. He had zero constitutional authority for all three of those things, including the Constituent Assembly. There is a mechanism, a constitutional mechanism in Peru for convening a Constituent Assembly, but it's not just because the president decrees it. There's got to be a vote in Congress, a referendum, and he was bypassing all of that. So it was a pretty flagrant coup, really. And that's what precipitated his impeachment. The impeachment vote was brought forward. Within two hours of him giving that address, he had been impeached and was immediately no longer president. And he was then arrested a couple of hours later as he attempted to drive to the Mexican embassy to seek asylum. One really important point, though, to understand what's currently going on in Peru, this turmoil, and the reason why many Peruvians are so unhappy with the new president and Congress is that Congress here, which has a conservative, even ultra-conservative majority, had many members of Congress and Peru's powerful conservative movement here, had never recognized the legitimacy of Pedro Castillo's election in the first place. It was a very Trumpian, you might say, approach to election denialism. And so these are the same people, most of them, that then impeached Castillo, having never recognized the legitimacy of his election in the first place, it has to be said that the Organization of American States, the European Union, the US State Department, none of them observed any irregularities in the election. They all gave the election a clean bill of health. But from the perspective of a Castillo supporter, here you have Congress, the majority of whom never 
believed Castillo to be a legitimate president in the first place, now having finding some pretext to oust him from power and remove him from office and, and send him to jail. And presumably it is that sort of feeling that sparked protests that turned violent. How and where did these protests begin? So the protests started spontaneously, mainly in Andean regions that are very poor and voted heavily for Castillo. They still don't have a national leader. The protests we're seeing today, it's multiple different groups who are convening them. Some of them are like local associations or organizations in different regions of Peru, but there's also student groups, unions to get all together. But it took two or three days for them to really kind of hit the streets. And some of those protests were violent, some weren't. But then we saw the police responding with repression that really it's impossible not to call it disproportionate and excessive, you know, using live ammunition, killing multiple people including quite a few people we know who weren't protesters. At least one doctor who was attending an injured protest in the street was killed, despite he was apparently wearing his medical attire. He was killed. We know of someone who's basically a candy salesman in the street who was killed, a teenage girl who was volunteering at an animal shelter and was heading to the shelter. She was killed. And then that violence then just escalated everything. And now Dina Boluarte, who had a window when she became president, stepping up for the vice presidency. So Dina Baluarte was Castillo's vice president who immediately became president upon Castillo's removal from office. Correct. She immediately, automatically became president. She'd run on the same ticket for Free Peru as Pedro Castillo, but she had, over the last 18 months, managed to stay completely clear of all the different corruption allegations and investigations surrounding him. She kept a relatively low profile. And the big question is, well, what's she going to be like when she becomes president? She straight away moved, I think, towards the center. She called herself a moderate left winger. She's made sounds that she's pro the free market. And her cabinet was largely technocratic and centrist, but she made several key mistakes. And by far the biggest is that she has presided over, allowed or tolerated the police to kill dozens of Peruvian citizens. And what explains that? What explains just the level of violence unleashed by police on protesters? So I think it's complex and we don't entirely know I would be surprised if Dina Boluarte had ordered the police to use this level of force. I suspect she's probably even asked them to cool it. But on the one hand, there is her own, I think, relatively weak position as president. She doesn't even have a party anymore in Congress. She was expelled from Free Peru last year, supposedly for not fully supporting the party platform. I think The real root cause is within the institution of the police in Peru, which is notoriously corrupt and just has this long history of violating human rights and responding with just really unnecessary, gratuitous brutality to protests. This has happened many times before, and Peruvians have been talking about the need for a complete overhaul of the institution training, the culture, everything, and it just hasn't happened. So I think this is a problem 
to a large degree that comes from within, I suspect, the police force here. So it is for all these reasons that you just explained that Peru is currently in the midst of its worst bout of political violence in decades. And we uh, you know, are, are speaking on the eve of this major protest movement in Lima. Is Dina Baluarte the accidental president? Is she intending to stay in office? I take it protesters are demanding her resignation, which presumably she won't give. What are some of the potential sort of political options right now for Baluarte? This is one of the major bones of contention. When she first took office, that very first day, her first speech, she said she was going to be president until 2026, when the next elections were due to be held. That was never going to wash. And she was very quickly, by public pressure, forced to say, no, we're going to bring the elections forward. I'm just a transitional president. She proposed a date of 2024, April 2024, that has to be approved by Congress, two separate votes in two separate legislative sessions. Congress voted for that, is due to vote again to approve that, possibly in February. But I'm hearing now members of Congress saying that maybe they won't after all, which is only going to you know, see things boil over again. Many of the protesters want Dina Boluarte to resign. She has said she will not do that. It would be a direction of duty. I think in part she's right. If she were to resign, she would be replaced automatically by the current Speaker of Congress, Jose Williams, who is this conservative former general who would be even less acceptable to the protesters than Dina Boluarte. And presumably the eighth president in Peru in six years. Exactly. And if that didn't work out, and it wouldn't, you'd have to change the Speaker of Congress. And really, within Congress, it's a single chamber, 130 members. There are very few candidates who might be acceptable to all sides, arguably there are none. So, I mean, we're already experiencing this kind of leadership vacuum, and I think it would only be even greater were Dina Boluarte to resign, however much protesters might want her to resign and might even have good reasons for wanting that. I mean, it just sounds like the situation right now is really volatile, just as everything you describe. Castillo was presumably removed for legitimate reasons. His protesters are airing very legitimate grievances. Security forces are responding disproportionately, and there is no seemingly obvious political solution to this impasse. That's correct. I mean, everything you've just outlined is true, but arguably the most worrying thing is that I can't see any political actors on the horizon who might be able to offer some hope or some leadership in this situation. There just aren't any. And the new elections, whenever they happen, are probably going to yield similar results to the last elections. And there's a reason for that, which is Peru has this closed political system where there are about a dozen or so political parties which are run by individuals basically who own the parties because they own the registration of those parties and who pick candidates personally. You know, the reasons you might pick a candidate is either because they're going to back you or because they're your cousin's friend or because they paid you money. There was a political reform a little while back to introduce party primaries, but 
Congress passed a law to basically postpone the application of that. And then on the other hand, and this is no accident, of course, it's very, very hard to register new parties here. The obstacles are very high. You need a certain percentage of signatures from the entire electoral list in Peru, which I can't remember the exact percentage, but it works out, I think it is 26,000 party members to register a party to compete in national elections. So basically, Peruvians are being forced, whenever the new elections happen, to choose from the same menu a bunch of different dishes that basically none of them actually want to be consuming anyway. Honestly, this sounds like a job for Pope Francis. I mean, it's a serious point, but perhaps one of the few institutions in the country that has a certain level of widespread respect across society is the Catholic Church and one or two other religious leaders. They're trying to intervene, but it's a very delicate, thin line for them to tread. But they're trying to help as much as they can. But they're also quite used to being dismissed by politicians from both the left and the right as well. I mentioned Pope Francis just because he has shown himself to be a deft political and diplomatic actor in crisis situations in Latin America over the last few years. As you were describing the situation, it occurred to me that this might be an opportunity for his diplomatic intervention. Going forward, are there any inflection points in the coming weeks or days or months that will suggest to you how this crisis may unfold? It's a little hard to see. I I think one of the big moments will be whenever the Congress gets round to its second vote on bringing elections forward. I mean, currently it looks like they're going to be April 2024. Most of the protesters want them as soon as possible. So let's say April 2023. But many of these members of Congress are now backing away. And it's quite extraordinary, really, because Congress has approval ratings that, depending on the poll, hover between 80 and 90 percent disapproval ratings, I should say. So, you know, a lot of this anger is focused at Congress, which during its brief time in office has just really staggered from one corruption scandal to another. And I mean, I think if Congress does try to go back on its word and push the elections back from 2024, or even just fail to bring them forward, I could see that there could be major protests and violent clashes outside Congress, with Congress almost physically besieged. I mean, we saw that in November 2020, after President Martin Vizcarra was impeached. And I think given that this Congress is so intransigent, it just appears not to be listening to what the country is saying. It's almost like it was the Congress of another country. I think unless they suddenly get a jolt of reality and wake up and and realize this, we could be headed in that direction. So this could get a lot worse. Yes. I mean, I think it's bound, frankly, to get worse before it gets better. The question is, you know, how much worse and exactly when. Thank you so much for your time. I really look forward to following your reporting in the coming weeks. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. 
If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>